good morning to you, church family. Oh, you're, we are awake. Well, if you weren't awake by this point, I mean, if your foot wasn't tapping with our intro song, and if it, you know, if it didn't get to you singing, I want to know you, Jesus, my Lord, and all the rest, then, you know, you need to drink an extra cup of coffee or some such. But good morning to you. How fabulous was it to see Randy up here playing saxophone? We're very grateful for that. I'm grateful to see each one of you this morning. I, uh, if there is something that people have told me to do over the course of my life to the point that it has gotten under my skin, it's smile more. Because I got one of these faces that constantly looks angry. And, you know, it's just like that. And I got to tell you, church, being back with you after being gone for a week or so puts a smile on my face. Glad to see you all. I thank, I thank God that uh, we were able to be away. We were down in Georgia. We were down in South Carolina. Uh, last Sunday, we were worshiping uh, at Renovation Church in Greenville, South Carolina. And that is, that is not the church that I attended when I lived there, but many people that were part of that church uh, founded this church. And Kelly and I were able to worship with old friends, uh, people that I had not seen some of them in, oh, goodness, 11 years-ish. I know some of them met Bram when he was a baby. And so they got to meet all of our kids. We got to see their kids. Uh, all of us, you know, our knees don't work as good and, and all the rest. And uh, how fabulous was it to see people that I used to worship with still following the Lord? Because we often know that that's, that's not the case. And this was the old, this was a church that had, you know, I worshiped with them. We used to meet in an old bank building and we were kind of the punk rock and jeans church with the loud music and everything else. And the music is still loud. And the preacher was this 23-year-old guy in a t-shirt with jeans on, and he spoke a fabulous message out of Romans 12.1. I was encouraged. Kelly was encouraged. I was encouraged that they entrusted a 23-year-old to do this. Uh, he's not their regular pastor. He's their youth guy. And then I was really encouraged that he did so well. And, you know, I, if I was their preaching pastor there, I'd be a little bit like, don't do that good, right? Uh, but it was just fabulous to be with them. I thank you that we were able to, to be away. I missed you. We are... Uh, we're glad to be back, and it's not just because that's a long drive down I-95, I-85, I-75. Uh, it's because we're glad to be back here with you. So um, it's also on this day uh, that I can say quite confidently that you're all about to hear the best sermon in this room that you've heard all year. So <laughs> feeling real confident about that. So I hope you're looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to being just that good uh, I do appreciate Steve Dunn for stepping in for me as we were out of town over the Christmas holidays, and I trust that you found his uh, message walking through the scriptures thing of hope. I hope you found that as compelling as I did. I trust that you did, uh, as I was able to listen to that this week and make my office look a little bit less like a crazy person works there. Uh, we all know that a crazy person does work there, but it doesn't look like it as much, right? So, you know, it's easy to say that our world, it's easy to say that it's without hope, and I do think that that's accurate. If somebody looked, you know, said, I just don't think there's a whole lot of hope in this world, I would agree. I would agree. Um, but I do think that our world, you know, part of the reason for that is it's trying to thrive. It's trying to thrive on anger, trying to thrive on arrogance and antipathy. And that really, you know, rules out hope as an appreciated thing. So if you missed Steve's message, I would encourage you go to our podcast feed. You can find it on Bradford's got it set up where just about any podcatcher, that's what they call those apps, uh, will find it or also on our YouTube account. Uh, I think Steve's message was a timely one for all of us. I was encouraged. You will be too if you go back and listen. Uh, Steve pointed us to the new year, and since that new year has come around, a lot of folks, and that includes me, 
uh, we kind of think of it as an occasion to reset, don't we? We think of it as an occasion to reset. Uh, and we all know, you know, you can make a change, you can reset, uh, whatever, anything like that, really any time, but a new digit on the calendar, it gives a lot of folks the sort of impetus, the sort of clean break with the past that we so often lack. And I'm more or less, you know, I'm thinking the same way here as we look at Jonah. And as you heard Bob read the scripture so well, you know we're in Jonah this week. Bob didn't know, uh, so he was very pliable and kind, and he read it anyway, so all 17 verses, and he pronounced Amittai, which was fabulous, right? So we're going to be in Jonah 1 today, and then we'll do a chapter a week for the following three weeks. Jonah is a story that most of us know. Most of us know Jonah. If you grew up in the church, you probably remember this one as one of the early narratives of the Bible that you learned about. You got this one, Noah's Ark, crossing the Red Sea, and then probably Jesus' miracle feeding the 5,000. I think those are the ones that we usually wind up knowing pretty early as children. At least you know, when I was growing up, people did. You know, I used to have an LP from Bill and Gloria Gaither that offered the reflection, I wonder how it felt to wake up in the belly of a whale. If you don't know what an LP is, Roger will tell you later. It's one of the earliest memories I have. I have that memory. Happy birthday, Roger. You didn't tell me it was your birthday when we had lunch this week, so happy birthday. Because this is a narrative we've known for a long time, I've known it as long as I've been alive, there's never a time I can remember where I didn't know about Jonah and the whale, as I would have called it. We, can t- we think we know this better than we do, don't we? So I'm asking you to be willing to do a little reset. Do a little reset on this particular piece of the Scripture, in addition to any resolutions you may have made and already broken. And not because there's some sort of hidden secret, nothing like that. You know, I, I, I did look this up. Paul Harvey never did a rest of the story segment on Jonah and the whale. Not that I could find. I would listen. Uh, but a rough summary of the events of Jonah, which is probably something that most of us could give. We could give a good approximation of what happens in this book. And then the words of the Holy Spirit, those might be two different things. Those might be two different things. So sometimes in our summaries, we wind up playing a bit of that game of telephone that we remember as kids where we might miss a detail because we remember it wrong, we heard it wrong, or we might layer a conclusion on top of the story that maybe, maybe it isn't warranted based on what the Spirit has said. So re- to reiterate this, as we walk through Jonah over the next four weeks, we're not going to probably uncover anything to blow your mind. Okay, So if that's what you think I'm setting you up for, Don't think that. You'll be underwhelmed. But I bet you'll find that your understanding of this book may be refined somewhat. I grew up, for example, being completely unfamiliar with chapter 4, and I can remember when my father's father read that to me, and I was like, wait, what? You might have a moment like that. And if it's not, then I'll have my humble pie warmed up with whipped cream on top of it. Thank you very much. So... Something significant that I think that we often miss about Jonah is that on the ancient Hebrew understanding of this book, and really the understanding of this book among contemporary Jews today, is this is part of what they would call the Book of the Twelve. The Book of the Twelve. We call these books at the end of the Old Testament, starting with Hosea, moving to Malachi. We call these the minor prophets, not because they're less important, but because they're shorter. They wrote less. It's not like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel that are quite long. 
For Jewish friends, they call them the Book of the Twelve, and they read them as one book. Read them as one book. And they also don't land at the end of the whole thing. The Hebrew ordering of what we call the Old Testament puts them at the last part of the middle section of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, I say all that to say this. Why, why give this, you know, this isn't a history lesson. You always tell us it's not a history lesson. Why bring this up? Why bring this up? I say all this to say that Obadiah, which interestingly came up in conversation in the office this week, Obadiah immediately precedes Jonah. And Obadiah is a book that deals with the condemnation of an enemy people, the Edomites. The Edomites, they had descended from Jacob's brother Esau, and they were generally not friendly with the ancient Hebrews. Obadiah's book deals with judgment against them, the enemy, the others. The prophets have a lot of judgment to speak over Israel for the disregard of God's law, for the disregard of the Torah, we could say. But sprinkled in those books are often condemnations of other peoples, often for their actions against Israel, and Obadiah is one such book. It's a hard one to teach for that reason. So in a similar vein, thinking along that, if you were reading along in the book of the Twelve and you read Obadiah, okay, we're condemning Israel's enemies, Jonah's audience, the people that he was sent to preach to, to cry out against, were an enemy. These people were the enemy. God sent Jonah to an enemy people, the Ninevites. You can find the ruins of ancient Nineveh in the northern part of modern-day Iraq. And Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And if there's bad and nasty people in the Old Testament, it's the Assyrians. It's the Assyrians. When it comes to the history of war, combat, the Assyrians are not pleasant to read about. They will curl your toes and make your stomach upset. The empire and Nineveh at this time would have been decreasing in power, influence at the time of Jonah's life, though the book does tell us that it's still a pretty large city by ancient standards. But the atrocities committed by the kings of Assyria and its armies would not have been so far back in the past that no one cared. So Jonah was sent to preach to an enemy, to an enemy. And as for the book of Jonah, the document that we have that you can hold in your hands, that you can look at on pages 726 and 727 of our Pew Bible, the original audience to have read this would have been people who did not much care for Jonah's preaching audience. Now, if that's confusing, if you're going, what did he say? He talks real fast, and I don't understand what he said. Let me put it this way. The readers of Jonah's book would not have had much love for those who heard Jonah preach. And that's a big part of the point. That's a big part of the point. The Israelite reader of Jonah would probably identify pretty strongly with Jonah as he conducts himself in this book. So keeping that in mind, keeping all of that in mind, what we're seeing in this first chapter is this. The Lord reigns over His prophet. The Lord reigns over His prophet. The prophets of God spoke on behalf of God. 
So this isn't a revolutionary concept when we think about it. It should be kind of obvious. But we're distant from this man, Jonah, and we're distant from his experience in a lot of ways. We're going to see later that the Lord, he reigns over us also in the exact same way, and that's where we might find ourselves to be much more like Jonah than we might expect. So it's a good prayer that Bob prayed that we not be like Jonah. The Bible is not always a, you know, a book about go do what this guy did. Sometimes it's don't do what that guy did. But to the text, we see our first section as kind of a call and response. It's a call and response in those first three verses. God calls, Jonah responds. Now notice that I didn't say that he obeys because he doesn't. He doesn't obey. So let's hear that initial interaction again. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. One of the, if you're a literary kind of person, you'll notice that things go up to the Lord, but Jonah goes down, 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 down. That's something that he does here in the first chapter. So this is likely a part of the story you know well. If I had given you a little quiz beforehand, you would have gotten this answer right, I would presume. God called, Jonah ran. God called and Jonah ran. Note that God is not uninformed on Nineveh's character and reputation. He calls them evil, and the way he speaks reminds me of both the narratives of Sodom and Gomorrah. Bram and I talked about those this week, as well as the enslaved children of Israel in Exodus. The evil has come up to his attention. The evil has come up to his attention. And it has arisen to his view. And this is where we expect God's prophet would enter. It's where Moses enters. We would expect that God's prophet would enter here. And Jonah, he's already known as a prophet. If you're a good Bible reader, 2 Kings 2.25, he prophesied in the days of the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of the evil king Jeroboam II. Jonah was not a stranger to people being against God. The Spirit does not key us into Jonah's internal monologue at this point, why he would not run away from Jeroboam II, who did evil in the sight of the Lord. But when the Lord wants to send him to Assyria, he heads to Tarshish. We don't don't know. And we don't know, likewise, where exactly Tarshish is. It may have been as far west as Spain. Writing from the day puts it at least as far as Cyprus which is in the Mediterranean Sea, which if you're a cartographer or a person who likes to look at maps, that's the opposite direction from Iraq. Tarshish was also a way of referring to the farthest known point to the west. This is like saying, Jonah went out to Timbuktu, as my mother would put it. It means a faraway place. We could say it this way. This is like the Lord telling us, Grace Church, go and preach in Cape Cod. And then we go to Seattle. That's what this is like. Tarshish wasn't a place that you just went because you needed a break. This isn't a holiday place. This is the frontier to Jonah. Jonah likely has no intention of coming back. Hence the scripture putting it this way, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And you need to mark that idea because we're going to come back to that next week. That's going to be a key idea next week, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now, of course... If that 
phrase sounds funny, and you're reading that in the Bible, you I flee from the presence of the Lord. We know from Psalm 139.7 that we, Jonah, cannot actually flee from God's presence. We cannot escape the Holy Spirit. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere, all at once, all the time. That's what that word means, omnipresent. Everywhere, all at once, at one time. He's here with us. He's with our brothers and sisters worshiping at other churches in our community. He's with the people in California getting up right now and getting ready for church, encouraging them. He's everywhere, all at once, all the time. He's not limited by geography. We can be one place. I can't be in South Carolina and in Delaware at the same time. The Lord can do precisely that. He's doing it right now. And though David wrote those words, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? And Jonah probably knew those words from that psalm. He does make a try at getting away from the Lord, doesn't he? So, when God calls, don't run. When God calls, don't run. It won't end well. It won't end well. See, Jonah, he's got the knowledge he needs to have. He's got the knowledge he needs to have. He knows factually, intellectually, that you cannot actually escape God's presence. He knows that. I'm confident in that. But he gives it a shot anyway. When God calls, don't run. It won't end well. You know, sometimes when we read people's dumb decisions in the Scriptures, we kind of like to mock them. I've heard sermons, Bible teachings, mocking the dumb decisions people make in scriptures. I've done this as well. You know, we can think of the children of Israel in the wilderness. They've seen God's mighty works, and then they gripe as if God could not provide for them. We can think of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and others. During Jesus' day, even the disciples at times, who wanted a political ruler, a a guy that was going to sock Rome in the jaw, and they didn't want redemption from their own sin. And we look at that and we pick on them. And you misunderstood Jesus. How could you? We could do that right here with Jonah. We could do that. But we, Andrew Pritchett, makes these exact same mistakes. We all do this, don't we? God gives us a command. It's not usually nearly as revolutionary as going to Tarshish, or excuse me, not Tarshish, that's where you're not supposed to go, Nineveh, and preach against it. And then we act as if disobedience is the best course of action. Jonah's silly. Jonah is silly. We found a book in the nursery that said Jonah was stupid. It's not wrong. And we're silly too. Sometimes I'm stupid too. You're the pastor. You're stupid. Yeah, sometimes. Ask my wife. Ask my kids. Ask my parents. Ask people that I worshipped with last week who knew me when I was younger. Don't ask. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that one. <laughs> oh, boy. You see, the big difference is you and I, we have a lot more of the Bible to read, and so we're actually more accountable than Jonah was. When God calls, don't run. It won't end well. It won't end well. And see, here in Jonah 1, Jonah chapter 1, We see the Lord reigns over His prophet. The Lord reigns over His prophet. So we've got this next section, verses 4 through 11. This is where I think the book gets really, really interesting. We've got plenty of stories of people being disobedient to the Lord in Scripture. 
I think it gets really interesting right here. We have a suspect in a storm. We've got a suspect in a storm. So here's, here's Jonah 1, 4 through 11 again. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought, or give a thought to us, excuse me, that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So because Jonah won't do as the Lord has directed, everyone in this boat is having a pretty bad time. These are sailors. This is not me and you on this boat. If this crew regularly sails to Tarshish and then sails back, they've encountered a storm before. This is not rookie hour on this ship, I don't think. But the picture here isn't seasoned sailors staring out into the storm with steely eyes. The picture we've got here is that these guys are in total disarray. They're panicked. Each one is crying out to his own god or gods, and they're throwing out the cargo. The Lord hurled the wind. They hurl the cargo. So they're willing to take a loss on this voyage to save their own lives. And not so with Jonah. He's asleep. He's got to be woken up by the ship's captain to maybe, just maybe, get his god to care about them. And remember, Jonah didn't lack knowledge here. That's how he can be asleep. He knows exactly what's going on. He's not saying anything yet, but he's a prophet of the Lord. He's got the pertinent information. What's missing is his devotion and his obedience to God. They discern through casting lots that Jonah does indeed have the information they want, which is who's to blame. Only it was always that easy, right? Throw some dice, find out who's at fault. Casting lots, you know, it happens a few times in Scripture, and it's kind of like, it's not exactly the same as, as throwing dice, but it's similar, similar enough. But they did this to see what God, or sometimes what the gods, wanted. And it's not something we're supposed to do, no matter what kind of theological rationale you might apply. The apostles, you know, you'll see this in Acts, they actually wind up casting lots to see who should fill in for Judas after his departure and then demise. Uh, but the apostles didn't have the Holy Spirit at that point, and uh, they don't do it again, so it's not for us to do. It's something we see God use here 
But it's not, that's not a reason for us to go. If you've got a hard decision to make this week, don't cast lots. You know, we'll pray for you. You can, you know, seek out good counsel. Don't cast lots for that. But here he uses a disobedient prophet as well, and so I don't think that we would use that to justify our disobedience to the Lord either. So everything that's in this narrative is not a go-do-likewise kind of thing. But in being found out, Jonah lets them know who he is. But more importantly, he lets them know who God is. He lets them know who God is. He says he fears the Lord, though at this moment we might wonder why he chose the particular word fear. Significantly, he identifies the Lord as the one who made the dry land, the Lord who made the sea, the God of heaven. We talked about this some recently. It keeps kind of coming up. But in case you need a refresher, the ancient pagans, they thought of the sea as the domain of the chaos gods precisely because of these things that are happening on this boat right now in our story. The land was often the domain of a much kinder god or goddess in their way of thinking. And Jonah tells them there is not one god of the sea and another of the land. There is but one god, and he's running away from that one god. And in classic scriptural fashion, we see this over and over again. Once you notice it, you can't help but see it everywhere. The people who shouldn't have a clue what's going on are the ones who make the most sense. Well, what are you doing? They ask. What are you doing? What have you done? And rightfully so. And again, we're told that Jonah is attempting to flee God's presence, which he has just told these pagan sailors cannot actually be done since God is both the God of the raging sea and of the stable and dry land. So I wonder how it felt to be a sailor on this boat and listen to this guy explain himself and their circumstances. But here's an observation we can make as we look at this portion of Jonah 1. Chaos is only apparent. I know that's a bold statement, but chaos is only apparent. Of course, what that does not mean is that calling a situation or an experience chaotic is wrong. You and I are not omnipotent. We don't have all power. We're not omnipotent. And in a given situation, we may not have a clue what's going on or what the Lord is doing. Jonah here, he knows exactly what God is doing. He knows that the sea, he knows that the storm are in the hands of God alone. And that's why he could be asleep. That's why he could be asleep. He's apparently pretty settled in his mind not to go to Nineveh and not to preach to the people there. And we'll revisit that idea again in Jonah 3. Jonah had the precise knowledge of why the sea was behaving in such a way that the sailors were willing to call out to any god who would listen. So the question for us to answer, me and you, 2024, not whatever year this was, is, are you submitted to the one who oversees all things? Are you submitted to the one who oversees all things? What we see here in Jonah 1 is that no one on this boat was. The sailors don't know the Lord, so they cannot possibly be submitted to Him. And Jonah, well, Jonah's actively rebelling, isn't he? So he's not either. So think on this in your own heart. Where are you on that? Submitting to the one who ever sees all things. You're not on the boat, 
in the middle of a storm and dealing with crashing ocean waves. But have you looked at the news? Is there maybe some apparent chaos out there? You know, what's, what's just wild to me, when you consider the IV drip of headlines, the hot takes that we take in on, on the news, current events, is that for most of us, we're looking to get through the day, get through the week with our bills paid, our kids fed and clothed and shoes that fit right, our loved ones in a good place, and maybe, just maybe, our laundry washed, folded, and even put away if we're feeling really good, right? That's what we're looking for. We're not dealing with missiles and invading armies. And of course, you know, I say that and immediately somebody goes, but we could be, and I understand that. I really do. But if you and I go up to Main Street in Newark today to have lunch, and we go to cross Main Street, we're watching for cars. We're watching for bad drivers. We're not thinking about enemy tanks. We're not thinking about snipers on rooftops. We're not thinking about improvised explosive devices. And yet, we let our circumstances chaotically toss us back and forth, don't we? We let our own circumstances, whatever those might be, toss us back and forth. And nobody can look askance at anybody else about that because we all do it. We all do it. Or, if we're real resolved on that, what we often do is we invite the events of faraway places into our hearts to cause unrest there. We're really good. My wife has this great term. I've never heard anybody say this before, so if she stole it, she'll have to tell me later, but I'm going to credit Kelly with this. We're really good at borrowing troubles from other places or other people, but not praying for those things unless somebody else is listening. We're real good at that. I added the last part, so if that part made you mad, come talk to me, not Kelly. Tell Kelly she, tell Kelly she turned a phrase really well, and I made you mad. That's pretty normal. You know, when you see a headline, any headline, you pick the headline, do you remember that God is in control? That God knew about that headline? Or is your understanding practically pagan? Is it functionally pagan? Is he in control when you make the green light and aren't late for an appointment, but then some other power is in control when you hear of a school system in California doing something wonky? In July and August of this year, when the national conventions for the two political parties nominate presidential candidates for November, are you going to see the excitement on the faces of the people that you don't want to win and think about how all is lost? Or... Or if not, if you're saying, why don't you turn that on? Well, are you going to watch the party that you're allied with and say, there, if, if that one will just win this thing, all will be well. I urge you to remember that no president, no judge, nor anyone else is going to dethrone the Lord who rules over the land and the sea and the cosmos itself, the God of heaven. So if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, and you've asked him that his cross would count for your sin, and if you plead that his death is for the affront of your rebellion to God, then you know, you know on a personal level, someone who is wholly, completely omnipotent. So then should we fret as we often do? 
We have a few more verses to go, and we do need to get there, don't we? So I'm going to call this last section offerings. Offerings. We'll see a couple of offerings here. And remember, we last left our intrepid sailors with a question of what they should do to Jonah to calm the sea. Here's verses 12 through 17. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So unlike Jonah, who was willing to endanger these guys to attempt to do what he knew to be futile, escaping the presence of God, the sailors don't want to throw him into the water because that would surely mean death. Interesting contrast there. But we're not just going to go ahead and skip to verse 17, because though that's the most unusual part of our text, it's not the most significant. This this book is not about an animal in the water. That is not the point of Jonah. It's not about if it's a whale, if it's a fish, if it's a something else. What we have is something far more remarkable. See, the men in the boat, they tossed Jonah into the water, making him an offering of sorts. They hurled him into the sea, giving him over... To God. We know about that one. That one's fairly obvious. That one's fairly obvious. But what about the offering in verse 16? Did you notice that one? When the prophet Jonah spoke, these men, these sailors, received knowledge of the God of Israel, and they desired to honor him. They saw that no God they had thought of controlled the sea. But Jonah's God did. We saw that with the wise man at at Christmas, the wise men at Christmas. So we see here instances of non-Israelites, non-people of God coming to their senses. And we we see that the offerings of non-Israelites, you know, of sacrifices to God are incredibly rare in the Scriptures. So Jonah spoke and these men heard and they acted on his word. And the funny thing is that Jonah, you'll see over the course of the book, has a great track record of pagan people receiving his message and then turning to the Lord. He bats a thousand. So spoiler on the several thousand year old book that we're reading. And he still remains reluctant to preach. You'd be hard pressed to find a more reluctantly successful messenger of God anywhere. I want to preach like that. But the Lord God reigns over His prophet and His prophet's word, doesn't He? And we're not content to leave things right there because we live on this side of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. We look back through Christ's cross to see Jonah. The cross is our window to see the Hebrew Scriptures. And while this text did not make a direct prophecy about Jesus like we looked at at Advent, it does prepare us for Him, doesn't it? 
Paul writes in Galatians 3.8 that the gospel was proclaimed in the past and that the Gentiles would be justified by faith. And I think we see something like that here, don't we? And as we think on God reigning over his prophet, we also might think about Jesus. Back in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, I'll have the words of the text on the screen if you want to follow along, but John 12 goes like this. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Then whoever sees me, sees him him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. See, the Lord had a word for Jonah to bring to Nineveh, one of Israel's all-time worst enemies. This was Jonah's job to do as a prophet, and he refused. Christ Jesus is the Son of God, but part of his vocation was one to speak the word of the Lord. And so we sometimes refer to him as a prophet, just like we refer to him as our priest and also the king. Where Jonah did not want to preach God's message, Jesus readily did. He came to earth sent by God his Father so that those who would hear him would not remain in darkness because his message is light. And right here he said it. The message isn't judgment, but salvation from judgment. So have you believed the message? And do you live as if you believe it? Have you believed the message? And do you live as if you believe it? Do you recall that when Christ called his disciples, he called them to be fishers of men? Fishers of men. He told them also to make disciples of all nations. We looked at this text in the Sunday school briefly this morning. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing the nations and teaching them everything he had commanded them. So then, commissioned by the reigning Christ, you, Grace Church, are to beckon others to follow him. Commissioned by the reigning Christ, you are to beckon others to follow him. If we want to be a church who reaches our community, and I think that we do, I believe you when you say that, we have to beckon others to come follow Christ. And that means we are to look at our community, our country, and not think of it in terms as people who are enemies. Not in the way we normally think of enemies. People to be defeated in some sort of conflict or combat or judicial situation. You know, it's very easy for us to read this book, recount the story of this man, Jonah, and scold him. We need to answer the question, who would we rather see defeated and beaten instead of that person or that group of people being saved and united to Christ? They might be represented by these flags here on the screen. That's China, Iran, Cuba, that's Palestine, North Korea, and Russia. And if thinking about that makes you uncomfortable, I don't intend to make people mad. That's never my intention. 
But if it makes you uncomfortable or makes you squirm in your seat a little bit, that's part of the point of Jonah. That's part of the point of this book. This little book, this book that doesn't take up two full pages of our pew Bible, it refuses to resolve in a way that we want it to. It leaves us with a question. You can read on ahead through Jonah 4 to find out what that question is. And it's a funny story, not funny ha-ha, but funny weird, because it refuses to play by our expectations. You don't learn to write this kind of story in your literature class at school. But I won't leave you on that, though, not this morning. Some thoughts for all of us, some takeaways, some applications. If you haven't been walking with Jesus, if you haven't been doing that, maybe you've never walked with Him, maybe you did for a time, and now you can't really say that you are. Do remember that God's people are imperfect. God's people are imperfect. The Scripture shouts that more than anything else ever could, more than the news, more than anything else. And here's the great thing about that. Scripture doesn't make any excuses for the imperfections of God's people because there are none. There are no excuses. If there were excuses, there would be no cross. What we have instead is an incredibly gracious God. We have an atoning death of Christ Jesus. And since that's the case, don't allow imperfect people to cloud your view of Him. Don't allow imperfect people to cloud your view of Him. That will also not excuse anyone. Because we have all of the Scriptures that are readily available, and in them, anybody can see Christ Himself. Never faltering, never failing, always good and always perfect. So the imperfections of God's people will not be an excuse of anyone before a just God. And for those of us walking with Jesus, maybe you walked in here excited about worship, prayer, hearing the word this morning. Remember and don't forget that all people without Christ, all of them, are the Lord's enemies regardless of where they're from. It doesn't matter how close you are to them, if they vote like you do or anything else like that. What matters is a heart given to the Lord and His blood shed on a repentant sinner's behalf in the person of Christ. So therefore, each of us is to treat each of them as people who may repent. Each of us is to treat each of them as people who may repent While all outside of Christ are God's enemies, we will follow His approach to them, which is gracious, loving enemies. Loving enemies. So we offer the gospel. We offer them the gospel. So speak of Jesus often. Speak of Him often. Tell people that you pray for Him. Tell them, I pray for you. I was praying for you this morning. What were you praying for me about? Well, you've been sick. You could also pray... I pray that you would receive Jesus. And if that makes them upset, that's between them and the Lord. It's between them and the Lord. I pray for you. Tell them that you love worshiping the Lord on Sunday mornings and invite them to come join. Not just because our worship musicians are so fabulous, and they are, but because it's good to worship the Lord, whether it was all these wonderful musicians up here or whether we had to sing a cappella because every one of them was sick.
Tell them that you love to worship the Lord. You love gathering with God's people. It's not a hassle to do that. When our brothers and sisters are not able to be with us because of sickness or various things, we miss them. Tell them that. Because you never know, when you explain that to a person outside of Christ, you never know what the Holy Spirit will do with that, do you? He does unlikely things with unlikely people. That's why we're all here this morning. There are people who would think that it was a joke that I'm the one up here with the Scripture preaching to you good people. And they would be right. Because the Holy Spirit did something unusual with a very unusual person. And you never know who may bend the knee to God. So I hope you'll join us next week. We'll go to communion here in a moment. But I hope you'll join us again next week. I have loved preaching Jonah 1 this morning. And it's probably very obvious. And I'm really looking forward to Jonah chapter 2. And I pray that you'll come back. I'm looking forward to it, and I I hope you are too. So let's pray together. Father God, I see so much of myself in this prophet Jonah. I see that I don't want to. I see the running away. I see the concealment of my identity, of one devoted to you, until the moment that I just have to say it, because people are asking. And so, Lord, I dare not fuss at this man. Because I do not know who has the speck in his eye and who has the log. I've never been sent to a people who has wrecked my countrymen. So, Lord, we ask that we would look to Christ. Would you, by your Spirit, guide our eyes to your Son? That we would never look at the failings of your people and turn from your Son, who never failed, but instead we would bend the knee to Him, that we would worship at His feet, and that we would let other, know, other people know that it is an absolute joy to worship at the feet of Christ, to belong to Him, to have His blood cover over our sins, for not us to be thrown into the sea, but our sins be thrown into the depths of the sea, never to be seen again. God, as we, as we go to communion, we thank You that this has been done on your people's behalf. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.